Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans, and sometimes their spouses. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. Before I begin today, I wanted to remind you that if you're all out of Military Murder Podcast episodes, you need to sign up for the Patreon or Apple Premium subscription. Stop messing around already and just do it. You can listen to over 30 full-length bonus episodes right now for just $5, and you can cancel anytime. Of course, this would mean the world to me. As a newly single mom, I am going to continue to create episodes for as long as possible. So I hope you'll keep listening. I hope you'll keep telling your friends about it. And hopefully one day you will become a patron. With that, today, as a little bit of a teaser and with permission from my Patreon supporters, I am unlocking an episode that I released to patrons only back in March of 2021. Today's case is very much requested often. But since I had already released it to the patrons, I didn't release it on my public feed until now. And without further delay, here is the episode without any edits. I will just say one thing. Andrew Witt's most recent appeal was denied. Now, here's the episode. Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. True Crime Warriors, if you're listening to this episode, you don't need an introduction, so let's jump right in. There's always that one case that haunts us, right? That one case that kind of murders our innocence. And today's case is the case that opened my eyes to the true horror that exists among our ranks. While I've been a part of the military in some form or fashion since 2002, I joined active duty in 2010. And I remember sitting at my desk reading an article about the case in United States versus Wit. And as I continued reading, absolute horror filled me from the depth of my soul. I remember thinking, is this real? How can someone be so evil? There must be more to this story than these articles are letting on. But at that point, I never dug deeper. And sure enough, the first military judge who I ever practiced in front of well, turns out he was the young major who prosecuted the case I will discuss today. I never got up the courage to talk to him about the case as I realized the toll that these cases that I now discuss on my podcast take not only on the victims and their families, but also on the people who have to navigate the court system and prosecute, defend, judge, and oversee the process. It's easy as a true crime consumer to forget about those people, but in telling these stories, I seek to honor the justice system that made me who I am today. That doesn't mean that they don't sometimes get it wrong, but I know it's a really hard job. I wish I could relay that this story has a happy ending, but it doesn't. What is about to unfold is one of the most grisly cases the Air Force has ever seen in its history. And although the acts that led to this case occurred in the early morning hours of July 5th, 2004, the actions of senior airman Witt on that night are still being heard by courts just a few years back. 
Join me today as I tell you the story of a 4th of July bloodbath that occurred in the base housing section of Warner Robins Air Force Base in Georgia. This is a case of one airman and his wife who were brutally murdered in their home, and they never saw it coming. This is the murder of Andy and Jamie Schlipsick. Now, let's dig in. My sources for today's case include various appellate court decisions in United States versus WIT, a Freedom of Information Act response that I received from the Air Force, a reporter article written by the lead prosecutor in the original WIT trial, and articles written in the Air Force Times, Stars and Stripes, Lubbock Online, La Crosse Tribune, and Military Justice for All. In the summer of 2004, Senior Airman Jason King and Senior Airman Andrew Schlipsick who I will call Andy throughout this episode, they were stationed at Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia. They were both married. Andy was married to Jamie for two years and King was married to Paige. They also had a three-year-old daughter. These two men were two peas in a pod and they struck up a quick friendship following the urging of mutual friends that the two should meet. And it turned out they should have met a long time ago because they had a lot in common. Not only did the two fellas get along great, but their wives were happy to meet as well. They spent much of their time together shopping, hanging by the pool, and just enjoying each other's company. The friends were eager to spend every minute together that summer because Andy and his wife of two years had decided their time with the military would come to an end, and they were excited to plant roots and start their civilian lives in Chicago. I say they, even though Andy was the only active duty military person because It is well known in military communities that the entire family serves in the military. You know, they endure moves every couple of years. They endure deployment separations and they endure all the ups and downs just like the service member. Andy and Jamie were just two weeks shy of leaving the military, as I said earlier. And Jamie was two weeks shy of turning 25. So it was a momentous time for the couple. And the Kings already had plans to go visit the pair in Chicago. And this brings us to the 4th of July weekend in 2004. The 4th of July weekend was turning out to be a great time. Jason decided that he would host a 4th of July barbecue at his house. The couples contemplated going to see fireworks, but for some reason or another, they decided, meh, we're not going to go. At around midnight, Paige, Jason's wife, decided she was pooped from all the fun in the sun and decided to go to bed. But, you know, let's be honest. She probably went to bed early because she knew full well that she would have to be up bright and early to entertain her three-year-old who happened to go to bed at 9 p.m. that evening. The trio decided to continue the party. After all, it was the 4th of July weekend and they were pending a big separation and spending as much time as possible with each other was important, even though it was Sunday. So they drank and laughed and drank some more. God knows what they were talking about that night. Do you remember being young and soaking up the summer nights while drinking? (laughs) Well, even though everyone was having fun, smoking and joking, as Air Force folk like to say, something had been on Jamie's mind for the last 24 hours or so. She wasn't quite sure what to do about it, but something had happened to her and it was clearly bugging her. While she didn't want to ruin the mood, she decided to tell her husband what was on her mind. And since Jason was a good family friend, she didn't mind telling Andy while Jason was present. By this point, it was about 1.30 a.m. And Jamie told Andy, Hey, remember last night when your coworker, senior airman Andrew Witt, was over our house and you went to bed? 
Andy looked at her, focusing on her words. Yeah? Well, Jamie continued, he made a pass at me. He tried to kiss me, but I pushed him away. WTF, Andy thought as he exploded out of his seat. Andy could take a lot, but Senior Airman Witt was not only his coworker, but he was his friend and he trusted him. And not only that, Andy let Witt stay at his house last night. Andy was a fiery redhead, and I can only imagine, speculation really is what I'm doing, that the alcohol and now this information made him turn flush. And Andy was angry. So much so that he decided to do something about it. Yeah, he wasn't going to stand for this disrespect. Side note, Jason didn't know Wit. In fact, he had met him the first time the night prior. And when Andy introduced Wit to Jason, Jason told Andy, any friend of yours is a friend of mine. But Jason was a diehard friend. So now Jason was equally like, oh, no, he didn't. And Andy didn't want to leave the issue alone. And he decided he needed to confront Wit right then and there. At 1.37 a.m., Andy called Wit on the phone to confront him and asked him what in the hell was going on in his stupid brain that he thought it a good idea to hit on his wife. Andy called, and not surprisingly, since it was the 4th of July weekend, Wit answered, and Andy got all mad and indignant on the phone with Wit. The conversation went on and on for the next hour or so. There were a total of three completed phone calls and nine additional unanswered calls between the two. Clearly, Andy wanted to talk about this, but Wit, for whatever reason, had other plans. Among those phone calls was a 33-minute phone call between Andy and Wit that began at 2.21 in the morning. During one of the various calls that connected, Andy was so beyond himself that he told Wit that he was going to report his flirtations with his wife to the first sergeant. And for those of you wondering, the first sergeant in the Air Force, it's not really a rank per se, although first sergeants do get to wear a diamond in their uniform rank. It is a senior non-commissioned officer. But a first sergeant is like a commander's right-hand person. Without going too far into the weeds, the first sergeant is a person that will come bail you out of jail, show up at your house if you don't show up to work, and help you with your emergency leave in times of need. Of all the people in the unit, the first sergeant likely sleeps the least. I have a good amount of respect for first sergeants. They may be my favorite people. Anyhow, getting read it out to the first sergeant is a big deal. But Andy went a step further, and besides just saying, I'm going to tell the first sergeant you were hitting on my wife. Andy had something else up his sleeve. Andy knew a thing or two, or at least he heard a thing or two, about Wit's extracurricular activities. Word on the street was that Wit was banging a lieutenant colonel's wife, and Andy was about to blow Wit's cover. Can you imagine that type of gossip that would create, and potentially a different type of military murder story, if a lieutenant colonel found out his wife was sleeping? with a senior airman. That's a lot. Clearly, Andy meant business. Well, during that conversation, God knows what Andy and Wit spoke about, but Andy would have never, ever in a million years imagined what would have happened next. What Andy could have never imagined was that during these conversations, Wit was preparing to have a face-to-face confrontation with him that morning. But it seemed like Andy was egging Wit on. Wit would say something ridiculous like, you should kick my ass. And Andy would respond with, yeah, I should. At this point, this fight just seems like a fight between two schoolboys. 
One boy makes a pass at another boy's girlfriend and they proceed to exchange a few curse words in the courtyard of the high school. They may even make arrangements to meet at the corner store after school. Well, once after school comes, they are both in their own right, nervously excited to really beat the other person's ass. They may expect to be declared the victor after one of them knocks the other to the ground, exchanging a few blows and even giving the other a bloody nose before an adult steps in to break up the fight. They will then proceed home with the jitters, heart rate beating a million times a minute, excited about what happened, only to be scolded by their parents for not being the bigger person. But what does mom know anyway? (laughs) I digress. Alas, the conversation ended between the two and the trio back on base, Jason, Jamie and Andy. They were all uppity and they were making different calls to different people like Jamie's sisters and some other friends. I'm imagining that these are all calls like, oh, no, he didn't hit on you, girl, while your hubby was in bed sleeping. How insane. Blah, blah, blah. You kind of get it, you know. By 4 a.m., Andy, Jason and Jamie had all cooled down and they were ready to keep the party going. But they had run out of beer and cigarettes. But wait, there was beer and cigarette at Jamie and Andy's house. So they jumped in their car and they drove one fifth of a mile on base to the other house. They went on Sargent's Drive, then up Hawkinsville, down 10th Street, down Fort Valley, and they parked in the driveway. As they enter the home, Jason is on the phone with a friend, and the friend has heard so much about Jamie and Andy that Jason hands the phone over to Jamie as she goes back to the bedroom to get a sweater, as the night had grown cold. Jason followed closely behind because Jamie had his phone. Andy stayed behind in the kitchen doing something or another when all of a sudden the front door swung open and in walked Andrew Witt. Yes, senior airman Andrew Witt. He looked at Andy as Andy yelled, what are you doing here? Get the hell out of my house. But Witt continued towards the back of the house as Andy started to yell or continued to yell, you need to leave. Witt was searching for Jamie and Jason and he found them in the back bedroom. Jason had the phone by this point and he told his buddy, I gotta go, that guy is here. And then he hung up. Suddenly, Witt looked inside the bedroom at Jason and Jamie. And while looking at Jason said, good, you're here too. As he turned and walked back towards the front of the house. The next few minutes go by so quickly that it's hard to even describe. Jason initially followed Witt down the hall thinking, oh, this one came to fight. Bring it. In the kitchen, Andy and Witt got into a scuffle, whereas it appears to me that Witt and Andy were eventually on the floor. Witt is straddling Andy and in walks Jason and he's like, oh, hell no. And he quickly jumped in, putting Witt in a headlock. Jamie watching the entire thing from across the room. When all of a sudden, Andy gets free and turns to crawl away from Witt. Witt gets out of the headlock and turns towards Jason. Jamie then yelled, oh my God, you're bleeding. Jason hadn't felt anything, but as he looked down, sure enough, he had been stabbed and he realized Wit had a huge combat knife. Jason knows he needs to get help, so he made a run for the back door, but it's shit, it's locked. And Wit is on his tail, stabbing him over and over again in the back. Finally, Jason got the door open as he ran to get help, but Wit was not letting him get far as he continued to stab him. Wit was chasing Jason across the grass and then Jason freaking tripped on a log or something. And as he fell, he thought, this is it. I'm a dead man. But then Wit remembered that Jamie is inside and he doesn't have much time. 
he quickly returns to Jamie and Andy's house. In the chaos, what we don't realize is that Wit had already stabbed Andy at least once in the back, a stab wound that pierced his spinal cord and immediately paralyzed Andy from the waist down. So when Wit returned back to the house, Andy was in the same exact position as he was when Wit left, except Andy had managed to dial 911 and the line was connected. When Jamie saw Wit return, she began to scream. The 911 operator heard Andy yelling that he was going to die that night. But Andy also pled for his life. Please don't do this. Please don't do this, he said. I won't tell anyone. I won't tell anyone. Andy even called him by name, Andrew. But then the 911 call went silent. Jamie, by this point, is helpless, so she ran to her room and locked the door. She didn't have her cell phone, so she couldn't even dial 911. She had actually left her phone in the car because they were only supposed to be in the house for a few minutes max. Their plan was to return back to Jason's house. Jamie locked her bedroom door as she cried for help, but Wit was possessed, or it would seem so, as he attempted to knock the door down by kicking it in, and when that didn't work, he used his shoulder, eventually getting to a helpless Jamie. Jamie, by this point, was behind the door in a corner, cowering in the fetal position as Wit grabbed her arm, either breaking her arm right then and there, or it's possible that she broke her arm as she fell back as he broke down the door. In any event, her arm was broken, and then he stabbed her multiple times with his combat knife. Meanwhile, Andy, Jamie's husband, was still alive in the living room, hearing his wife be murdered, but there was nothing he could do. After Wit was done with Jamie, he walked into the living room, Andy not quite yet dead. Inside the home located at 1152A Fort Valley Street, Robbins Air Force Base, Georgia, Wit did one last thing to ensure that Andy would not live to tell this tale. He stabbed Andy through the heart with his 13-inch combat knife. Senior Airman Andrew Paul Witt was born in 1982. He grew up in West Salem, Wisconsin, and he graduated from high school in 2000 from Aquinas High School in La Crosse, Wisconsin. A year after graduation, he embarked on a career in the Air Force, and was assigned to Robbins Air Force Base in August of 2002. Up until the events that unfolded on Robbins Air Force Base in July of 2004, there were really never signs of Wit committing such a heinous crime. In fact, according to court records, a few hours before the murder, Wit went on two, I repeat, two separate dates. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Earlier on the 4th of July, he and a young lady went to go watch a movie. After the movie, they went back to his place or they went back somewhere and they hung out for a little bit before they parted ways. And Wit went to see fireworks with some other girl. Then he returned to his off-base apartment, which he shared with two other men. What we later learned, though, is that during that 33-minute conversation between Andy and Wit that began at 2.21 a.m., Wit was putting his plan into motion. During that time, Wit calmly put on his military uniform. This was the dark green camo ones worn back in 2004, the battle dress uniform, the BDUs. Well, Witt then placed the 13-inch combat knife that someone had gifted him 
he placed it in the trunk of his car. Now, when I say 13 inches, it's actually a little bit less than 13 inches, but the blade of the knife is actually six and a half inches and the handle is six inches. So the whole thing from like the tip to the bottom of the handle is close to 13 inches. Witt then jumps into his car and he drives the 10 miles to the military installation, arriving on base at about 3.15 in the morning as security footage at the gate catches him entering the installation. Witt then drove to Jason's house, but he didn't park immediately in front of it. He actually parked 50 yards from Jason's house as he got out of the car, went to the trunk to retrieve the knife and placed it in his cargo pocket. He then hid in the woods to watch from afar like a mother freaking freak. At 3.32 a.m. though, Witt called Andy and was trying to get some intel. Where are you? Are y'all still drinking? Those types of questions. Then Witt watched as the trio jumped into their car at about 4 a.m. and drove to Jamie and Andy's house as he followed on foot. Then Witt attacked the trio in the home and afterwards he ran back to his car disposing of the knife in his BDUs. But remember, the top at least has your name sewn on it. Witt then jumped into his car and drove back off base to his house, returning to his home as if nothing happened. But before getting home, he did notice blood on his boots, so he put them in a dumpster located near a preschool. What Witt didn't bet on was that there would be any survivors, but he'd be wrong. Within minutes of Jason collapsing in his neighbor's driveway, he continued to yell for help, and the neighbors quickly came outside and summoned the police. Jason lay there barely breathing as he told whoever would listen, please, please tell my wife and my daughter that I love them. Because this was on base, first responders were all military. King was quickly taken by ambulance to be treated for life-threatening wounds and extreme blood loss. First responders to the home weren't sure if the threat was over, so they entered the home, cleared it first, then called in people to try to perform life-saving measures on both Jamie and Andy, but it was evident that they were beyond saving. Then the Office of Special Investigations, OSI, came in to do their part. But I think it's safe to assume that they had never seen such a crime scene on a military installation in their careers. But sadly, there is a first time for everything. Andy's body was in the living room. He was laying on his back, dead. And Jamie was found slumped against her bedroom wall, surrounded by blood, blood everywhere, on the wall, on the door, on the nightstand, on the lamp. News quickly spread about the double homicide, and it was unclear if King was going to survive. And the Robbins Air Force Base community was on edge. And let's not even talk about Paige. She went to sleep and everything was fine. And she woke up and her husband was in the hospital fighting for his life. And her two best friends who she had just celebrated the 4th of July with, they were dead. I cannot even begin to imagine the trauma. Meanwhile, uniformed personnel were pulling up to Andy and Jamie's family's houses to inform them and to say the dreaded words. We regret to inform you. Can you imagine the confusion that that family had? Like, wait, what? They're about to move here permanently in two weeks. So what do you mean they're gone? What in the world happened and where are they? 
By daylight, the hunt was on for the killer on the military base. I imagine there were lots of stops and just people being interviewed left and right. Back off base at Andrew Witt's house, he's living the dream. Like, like he didn't just almost kill three people. He doesn't have a care in the world. That morning, he went to sleep and he awoke telling one of his roommates that Andy was not happy with him and he didn't want to be friends anymore. The roommate was probably like, "Okay, whatever. What are you telling me this for? Right. Later on, Witt told his roommate that he was going to head to Taco Bell and then he left. The roommate was home and he started getting kind of hungry. You know, when someone tells you they're going to go get food, even though you're not hungry, you start to get hungry. So the roommate starts to get hungry and he calls Witt, hoping that he's still at the Taco Bell because he wants him to pick something up. But Witt was like, sorry, bro, change of plans. I came to Applebee's instead. And the roommate was like, "Okay, cool. Just stay there. I'll meet you there in a bit. The roommate eventually got there, but he wasn't there very long before apparently Witt was like, all right, I'm done. I'm leaving. Bye. (laughs) So so the roommate's like, "Okay, whatever. And the roommate stays. I'm not sure who he stays with, if he stays alone. But as he's sitting at the Applebee's, he hears about the murder on the installation and he is shocked. And being a nosy airman, he wants to beeline to base to see what he can dig up. But the roommate doesn't want to go alone. He actually wants Wit to come with him because him and Wit are pretty good friends. And hearing about a murder on the military installation is a pretty scary event. For whatever reason, Wit agrees to go and the roommate swings by and picks him up before driving the 10 miles to base. The roommate starts to get this pit at the bottom of his stomach as he's driving. And he tells Wit, I don't know about this. I don't have a good feeling about this. And Wit looks at his roommate and he's like, bro, you're scaring me. Calm down. As they drive close to Andy and Jamie's house, it is cordoned off with crime scene tape and Wit begins to act weird AF. Wit quickly says, I can't be here. I have to go. But it's too late. They've been spotted. OSI agents spot the car and they stop and ask for identification. But after they get them, OSI asks the two men to get out of the car. The roommate quickly complies, but Wit is frozen in his seat and he has to be helped out of the vehicle. And the roommate is like, dude, WTF? They were both then handcuffed and arrested. The roommate was released later that day, but thankfully, Wit was not. Wit's trial took place a year after the double murder in October of 2005. But the case had spurred so much media attention that the modest courtroom on Robbins Air Force Base would not do. Not especially since this case was a capital murder case. Just the three victims, family and friends would take up the gallery. So the trial team worked to hold the court downtown, specifically at the Bibb County Courthouse. At trial, there were over 80 prosecution exhibits, 100 defense exhibits and 250 appellate exhibits. Throughout the entire court martial from start to finish, The jury heard from over 30 witnesses at each stage of the trial. In addition to the obvious evidence, the government introduced testimony of one of Jamie and Andy's neighbors, who just so happened to have woken up at 4 a.m. to take his puppy outside on the day of the murder. When he got outside, he saw a man similar in size and stature to Wit running up the street. The team also introduced Wit's confession. Yes, Yes, you heard me correctly, a confession. In the confession, Wit 
initially is like, wait, what? Me suspected of murder? Can't be. No way. Not. No, 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 not me. Then he says, oh, yeah, I was there, but I left before they were murdered. I'm not sure who did it. But then he's finally like, yep, you got me. He even goes as far as taking the investigators to the items he ditched the night before, including the knife, his uniform and his boots. Witt claimed the reason he returned to the house after chasing Jason down the path was because he didn't want to leave any witnesses. In his confession, Witt admits that after he was done with Jamie, he returned to the living room where Andy was still alive. As he nonchalantly told investigators that he, quote, finished Andy with a blow to the heart, end quote. Surprisingly, none of the evidence obtained at the crime scene, none of it contained Witt's DNA. But Witt took Jamie and Andy's DNA with him, as was discovered on Witt's BDUs and his boots. Prosecutors introduced various 911 calls, including the neighbor's 911 call that came to Jason's rescue. The jury also heard the 35-second 911 call made by Andy before the call went silent. And sadly, the operator tried to call Andy back, but it always went straight to voicemail. Witt's two roommates testified as well. One in particular had been living with Witt for about five months and just couldn't believe his ears when he heard that his roommate was being charged with a double murder. In fact, it bothered this roommate so much that he decided to pay Witt a visit in jail two months after the murder. During this conversation with his roommate, Witt confirmed that Andy had threatened to rat him out about the affair. Witt told him that he wore his BDUs so that he would be less visible in the night. However, Witt claimed he went to the house to, quote, fix the situation, whatever that means. Witt describes the surge of adrenaline that went through his body when Jason placed him in a chokehold. Witt then described to his roommate while he was in jail that he stabbed them all and finished Andy with a stab to the heart. The members got to see and feel the combat knife that had cut two lives short. Think about that. The jury got to hold the knife in their hands. The doctor that saved Jason's life testified, and the most shocking part of his testimony is that he said that when paramedics arrived on scene, they thought Jason was dead. He didn't even have a radial pulse, which means no pulse on his wrist. And not only that, had the knife entered Jason's body one millimeter in the opposite direction, Jason would be dead. Of course, the victim's injuries were also discussed at trial. Jamie had no defensive wounds as she was murdered while in the fetal position. She was stabbed a total of six times. And not sure if you can make matters worse, but she was wearing a skirt that night. And when she was discovered by first responders, she was no longer wearing her skirt. Her skirt was found about 10 feet from her body. The media has speculated that Witt took them off to initiate a rape, but he got spooked when he heard sirens in the distance. Andy was stabbed three times, twice in the back and once through the heart. 
Jason was the only survivor and he was stabbed four times. His survival was a miracle considering three of his four stab wounds were potentially life-threatening. He was stabbed in the chest and then in the back. After his initial two-week stint in the hospital, he was released, but he was quickly returned when his lung collapsed. He did go on to survive and testified in Witt's military trial. An interesting tidbit that I gleaned from an article in the Air Force Reporter is that the trial team actually had the crime scene preserved for over a year, and their intent was to possibly take the jury members to the crime scene. But after the court got started, they actually decided against it. Although in retrospect, they were happy they were able to preserve it because not only was the government able to access the home to review the evidence, the defense was able to do the same. And so were all of the experts. The defense tried to argue kind of like a heat of passion provocation. They claimed that Witt went to the house to smooth things over, but their theory just didn't make sense. The camel clothes, the parking away from the house, the running and sneaking around in the bushes at 3 a.m., that's all insanity. The defense argued that the threat to his career was enough to put Witt over the edge. But I kept thinking, you're a senior airman with three years in the freaking military. Really a career? Not quite yet, man. Come on. And really, murder? Well, defense didn't think this was murder. They actually argued for voluntary manslaughter, but the evidence clearly pointed to something more sinister. A plan. A man lurking in the night with a 13-inch knife, walking around the house, trying to gauge where all of his potential victims were located. And his weapon of choice? A knife, a silent weapon that neighbors would not be able to hear. It is safe to say that the 12-member Air Force panel was shook after the close of the case, but they had to go behind closed doors and decide, was this murder or something less? Eventually, the 12 members had reached a verdict, and the question was in everyone's mind, would they return a unanimous verdict? Because many people don't know this, but you don't need a unanimous jury vote in the military for a conviction. All you need is two thirds of the panel to vote guilty or not guilty to come to a decision. But in this case, if the government were to be able to argue for the death sentence at sentencing, the jury would need to be unanimous in their verdict to even consider the death penalty. The jury returned after deliberating for 17 hours. The judge reviewed the worksheet and Andrew Witt and his team of defense attorneys stood as the verdict was read. Unanimous guilty of two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Now, the members of the victim's families sat in the gallery and cried as the verdict was read, thankful that justice was finally being served, but not so fast. While in civilian criminal trials, the trial and sentencing occur at different times, usually months apart, in the military, they don't mess around. As soon as the verdict is read, they move right into sentencing. And things were no different in this case. And with that, the government presented their case as to why wit should be sentenced to death. 
If successful, Witt would be the first airman on death row at Fort Leavenworth since the 1990s. During sentencing, the government is able to present aggravating evidence, whatever they believe sets this murder apart from a different murder. And on the flip side of the coin, the defense has to take the opportunity to humanize their client. They can present any mental health concerns they believe could have caused a seemingly good working airman to snap over the threat of being reported for flirting with a married woman and sleeping with a lieutenant colonel's wife. This type of evidence is called extenuation and mitigation. There's no need to rehash the aggravating factors about this case because you have all heard them. But for the first time during the trial, at sentencing, the jury got to hear from Andrew Witt himself. They had sat in judgment of this man and they hadn't even heard him say a sentence until now. Witt stood before the jury, turning to the victim's family members as he said, quote, I am so sorry from the bottom of my being, end quote. But Jamie's father was sitting in the gallery and I'm sure he just wanted to leap over and kill him right then and there. And he must have been fuming because as soon as Witt said that, the man stood up and just left the courtroom. Witt continued, now facing the people who would make the same decision he so callously made just a year earlier. Should he live or should he die? Witt said, quote, I know that my crime is monstrous and that most of you may think that I am evil for what I have done. I look at my own hands sometimes and wonder how I could have done those things. Give me the chance to rebuild my life, no matter how basic it will be as a life in prison and do something constructive to make up in some small way for the destruction that I have caused, end quote. Excuse me, what? Nope, next. <laughs> Just kidding. The jury did not have an easy feat before them when they entered the deliberation room, but eventually they emerged with a decision on October 13th, 2005. Everyone in the courtroom waiting with bated breath as the sentence was read. Andrew Witt was sentenced to death. Witt was shocked and confused, believing for whatever reason that this jury was going to spare his life. But just as he had done, they weighed the facts of the case and the ruthlessness of Witt's actions and determined he was not worth saving. Which, I don't blame them. I tend to agree. And please, listen, everyone, spare me the death penalty lecture. I know the criminal justice system is not perfect, but in cases like this one where it's pretty open and shut, I do believe that the death penalty is called for. As the sentence was read, King and the families of all of the victims cried and cried and cried. Finally, they can rest assured knowing that the man who did this to their beloved kid would pay with his life. But not too far from them sat Andrew Witt's mother, also crying and crying and crying. While she couldn't understand what would possess her son to commit such a heinous crime, she couldn't fathom why we lived in a system where people still believed in an eye for an eye. It's safe to say that Jamie and Andy were not coming back. And while the case was over for now, happiness would never look the same for those affected by their murder. And when I say no one was ever the same, I mean everyone in that courtroom, not the victims, not wit, not the attorneys, not the jury, not even the judge. But with the death penalty comes so many levels of review. 
and appeals that sometimes family members ask themselves, is it even worth fighting for this? And this case would prove to be one of the most frustrating cases to watch go through the legal wickets. Eight years after Witt's trial, the U.S. Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the verdict, but they set aside Witt's death sentence and ordered a rehearing, in essence saying that Witt's attorney was ineffective because he failed to present potentially mitigating evidence that could have saved his life. But when the Court of Criminal Appeals set aside the sentence, the government was like, oh, hell no. So they immediately requested the Court of Criminal Appeals to reconsider their new decision, which they did. And in 2014, they actually overturned their prior decision and reinstated the death sentence, stating that, yeah, your attorney's performance was less than stellar, but it did not result in prejudice. And because death penalty cases require a mandatory review at the highest military appellate court, the case was then forwarded to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, or CAF, as we call it. In 2016, after arguments and consideration, CAF made a decision that shocked the legal community. They made a decision not necessarily based on the facts of the Witt case, but on the actions of the lower appellate court. What? In essence, there was an issue on how judges in the lower appellate court participated in the first appeal and then in the reconsideration appeal. And because a few judges participated in the reconsideration that reinstated Witt's death sentence when they should not have, CAF determined there was prejudicial error and the case was ultimately remanded to trial for a sentence rehearing. A sentence rehearing, for those of you wondering, requires the government to redo the entire sentencing portion of the case from scratch. But by the time of Calf's decision, Jamie and Andy had been laid to rest for 12 years and Witt had been sitting on death row at Leavenworth for 11 years. And a sentence rehearing kind of sounds pretty simple, but do you understand the gravity of it? For starters, you need a new jury and this jury will not have experienced the first part of the trial, the verdict. The one where all the lawyers bend over backwards to prove the case. It's an emotionally taxing experience to sit through everything. But now it was back to square one. The victims, let's talk about them. They had to reopen old wounds that had just started to heal. And now Witt's new defense team had a clean slate to present whatever mitigating evidence they felt was necessary to spare their client's life. And the trial team also had to start from scratch. The entire team was different. One of the prosecutors from the original case went on to make full bird colonel and he himself became a judge. And I'm not sure about the others, but like I said, there was a whole brand new team. Jason and Jamie and Andy's families now had to get used to the new trial team. Sadly, I came across a YouTube video by Jamie's older sister, Jody. She uploaded the video on July 5th, 2017. 13 years after her sister was murdered and the video was a plea searching for the impact that Jamie and Andy's death had on those who loved them. The purpose was to use these stories to ensure that Wit received a just sentence anew. 
And Jody, Jamie's sister, wrote some words. And while I could easily give you the cliff notes, her words really touched me. So I wanted to share them in her own words. I said it didn't matter what punishment he received, that whatever the jury decided, it wouldn't bring my sister back. It wouldn't change the events of that evening. It wouldn't change my thoughts on humanity. It wouldn't change the trajectory of my life plan. But it does matter. It matters if I know that he's locked behind bars that will not let him free. It matters if I believe that I am safe, that our justice system allows the greatest punishment for someone who I believe committed the greatest crime. But for me, it matters because it allows him to continue to inflict trauma on me and my family. It matters because my sister did not die in a car accident. It matters because my sister's murder will continue to wage war on my family for as long as the appeal process is allowed to endure. Because his punishment, in so many ways, offered solace to my family. That the reversal of his sentence brings all of these emotions flooding back. It matters because we may have to sit again in a courtroom. I may again have to look at this man who did unspeakable things to my sister and two other people. It does matter because every day I know that he could go free is a day that I worry for the safety of others. I recall saying to my father once, not long after the trial, that it didn't matter. I recall him pleading with me that if he should die while these appeals are still in process, that I would continue to sit in the courtroom, that I would speak on Jamie's behalf, that I would continue to fight for justice in her and Andy's honor. And I don't remember if I said it to him or thought it to myself or perhaps spoke about it to others, but I knew in my mind that if that day should come, I couldn't promise that 10, 20 years down the road, when I had children of my own, that I could stop everything I was doing to honor his request. And here I stand, 12 years later, a husband, two small daughters, a full-time job, a life with an intention of simplicity, free from the anxiety that has tormented me. And because of this decision, I am now facing all the anxiety that wreaked havoc on my mind and body, resulting from the trauma my family experienced all those years ago. I want to think of resiliency, of all the amazing things I've learned as a social worker in the last 12 years since their deaths. But I'm once again drawn to the evil, magnetized by the pain and pulled once again to Google the articles, forced myself to read in black and white the things he did that night. And I don't believe I tried to avoid it all these years, through my writing, therapy, and working with the bereaved, it was always close by. But the trial was something I always felt I could leave in the past. The trial was not my sister's legacy, It was a very small piece of her life story. It was not the memory I chose to honor. But this rekindling of the flames, this fuel added to the always burning embers, is more than I can handle on most days. 
I don't know how I'll react if we're called to testify again. What I would say to a jury to express the impact their murders have had on our families. Would I talk about the drinking, the panic attacks, or would I talk about resiliency? About my surviving sister finishing college so shortly after their deaths, and me going on to complete a master's degree a few years later? Or would I talk about our children, the nieces and nephew that Jamie would never meet, the aunt and uncle they would know only through stories and scrapbooks, or tell it through my three-year-old daughter's eyes, knowing only that Andy and Jamie are in heaven, and me deciding as she ages how much to share about that fateful night. How do you explain to a child that something so horrific can happen to someone in her family? And how do you explain that the person responsible could someday walk free? So with that thought, I will say, it does matter. It matters to the hundreds of people who were impacted by these deaths, whose sense of safety and security in the world was shaken, who were traumatized by the nature in which their lives were stolen, re-traumatized by reading and listening and viewing photos of the events during the trial, and inevitably again at this resentencing. In the end, his punishment matters. I listened to Jody's words and I cried my eyes out. Jamie was one of three girls. I have two daughters and another on the way. My heart breaks for these victims, for their families and for their friends. The sentence rehearing took place in 2018. And with that, the defense took the opportunity to present new mitigating evidence. For starters, they discussed an alleged traumatic brain injury that Witt suffered only four months before the murders. Specifically, Witt was riding his motorcycle when he hit a patch and crashed. He was allegedly disoriented for a few seconds, but he went on to work that day and he seemed loopy. His motorcycle was pretty jacked up as well and his helmet looked rough as hell. This was new information the original jury had not heard. Additionally, one of his roommates was now willing and always willing to say that after the motorcycle accident, Witt's personality changed. Witt became more outspoken and he didn't put up with nobody's crap. After that was when his roommate saw him actually come out of his shell. He even broke up a fight one time, which he would have never done before the motorcycle accident. In addition to this, Witt's defense counsel presented evidence of Witt's 14-year good boy record at Fort Leavenworth. It's unclear from reading articles what, if anything, the prosecution changed in the 2018 sentencing hearing. But whatever it was, it wasn't good enough to get the death penalty because when the new jury returned, they returned a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. And with that, the wit trial came to an end. After 13 years of appeals and ups and downs and the death penalty and no death penalty, just kidding, death penalty, Jason, Jamie, and Andy's families finally got closure, although it was not what they would have preferred. If I can, I always like to end these tragic stories with more information about the victims. Where is he now? Jason King, the lone survivor of the vicious attack. 
The Air Force Times caught up with Jason in 2013, and they reveal in an article that when the court martial ended in 2005, Jason believed that that would be the end of his misery, but it was only just beginning. Leading up to the trial, he was preoccupied with the trial, with helping the trial team as best that he could. He focused 100% of his attention on ensuring that wit would be locked away forever. But after there was no more prep, after there was no more trial, he was left with his thoughts and his memories of the worst night in his life, being attacked by one of his brothers in arms. The nightmares began, the PTSD kicked into overdrive, the anxiety, the depression, it just piled on. Throughout the years, King battled with addictions, alcohol, and drugs. And sadly, with all that going on, he lost his marriage in 2009, and he lost his career in the Air Force soon after. It just wasn't going as he had hoped. One of the things that Jason has had a hard time with is survivor's guilt. He doesn't understand why he ran. He doesn't understand why he lived. And the fact that he ran, he survived, and his friends were brutally murdered, that sucks him in every single day. And something that we learn is that when Jason was celebrating the 4th of July with Andy and Jamie that year, he was actually grieving another best friend's recent death. Two weeks prior to that 4th of July party, Jason's best friend and his wife were actually killed in a car crash. Jason describes being in the hospital after he was stabbed and waking up in a haze every single day. But on day three, he woke up, asked his wife, they're dead, aren't they? She slowly turned around and said, yes. Jason spent two weeks in the hospital. Then after he was released, he went in for another two weeks when his lung collapsed yet again and he got a staph infection. When he finally got to go home, life was not the same. It was never the same. He refused to sleep in the bed, instead opting to sleep on the couch. And all the doors had to be unlocked for a quick escape if necessary. He wanted to be able to hear all the noises and the couch was the best place. Despite all that Jason was suffering, immediately after the trial, he thrived in the military, even winning the Levito Award, which is when the person is named number one graduating student out of the Airman Leadership School. But after a PTSD diagnosis and some other health issues, including breathing problems, he was medically discharged from the Air Force in 2011. At the time of the Air Force Times article in 2013, Jason did seem to be getting the help that he needed, and he was hopeful for the future. I now want to talk to you about Andy and Jamie. Andy and Jamie were both from Peoria, Illinois. Jamie graduated from University High School, and she went on to college and eventually graduated from Eastern Illinois University in 2002. Andy and Jamie met when they were just 16, and it was instant love, puppy love. They were like yin and yang. They were so different, but perfect together. Jamie was quiet and sweet, and she was mostly about friends and family. Well, Andy knew how to work a room, and he never met a stranger. The pair ended up marrying on June 8th, 2002. They had only been married for two years when they were brutally murdered. According to her father, Jamie was the glue that kept everyone together. While most college students need reminding to call their parents, not Jamie. She called home four to five times a week. And Andy wasn't that much different in that respect. Close to his family, he was a hardworking man, and he cared more about people than titles or money. 
Andy was 25 years old when he was murdered. Jamie was exactly two weeks shy of her 25th birthday when she was slaughtered. At the funeral, Jamie was cremated and placed in an urn. That urn was cradled by Andy as he lay in his casket for viewing. And as if that isn't enough of a tearjerker, when Andy's belongings were returned to his family, the first thing his family saw when they opened his wallet was a pocket-sized picture of Jamie. When I say that this story jacks me up when I think about it, I'm not lying. I'm not sure what it is about Jamie and Andy's story that upsets me the most. Maybe it's the fact that they were weeks away from leaving the military. Maybe it's the fact that they had just celebrated their two-year anniversary. Or maybe it's the fact that they were brutally murdered in their on-base house, where we often feel safest. Sometimes I wonder, maybe it's because it all started with a confrontation over a past that should have never occurred. All right, I want to say thank you all for joining me for another monthly bonus episode. This was a tragic case. I have had various people request it. And like I said, this case I hold really close to my heart because it's one of the first military murder cases that I learned about. Make sure that you're all following me on social media on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on Facebook at Military True Crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with all of my boot camp and higher fan club members. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Podcast.